How do you not get excited just about uh, uh, some of the stuff going on at Hillcrest, just with the uh, coffee with a purpose? I love the La Providencia connection. Triple treat last week or, uh, was thrilling. Um, next week, Neil Gammon as uh, one of our uh, elders. He's, he's wrapping up the elder candidacy process. Incredibly thankful. There you go, Jacob. In the process of collecting papers, and I never draw attention to things that people would probably not want anyone to draw attention to. So we're not going to draw any attention to the fact that all the papers spilled all over the place. It's a beautiful thing. A lot, a lot of positive things. Prayer, praise, and pie coming up on the 20th. I love that. And then if you listen to 105.1, We've already started hearing Christmas music, if, if that's something that you guys get excited about. Are you excited about Christmas music pre-Thanksgiving? No, not so much. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. Just already starts to get you in the Christmas spirit. And, uh, and we've been praying, just, uh, God, what are you inviting me into? And so, uh, second service, Joanne, am I allowed to share anything? Is this okay or no? So I, I pray, I pray, God, what are you inviting me into? That's something that I actively desire, I desire for you guys. And so uh, I have a recurring meeting at Thursday with our elder chair. Um, and my wife's car happened to be uh, getting detailed. You, you, could you could never imagine why we'd want to detail our vehicles. Um, just absolutely disgusting. Just all the gummy bears that melt into those crevices. And so, so I'm prompted. I was like, man, I could wait after work. Uh, and I could go drop off our vehicle, or, uh, man, Larry, I, I don't know, I'm just feeling prompted right now, let's, let's, go, let's go get the car now. And uh, so we go to Honda Zimbrick uh, for our Honda Odyssey, and, uh, and we got to see Joanne, and, uh, and uh, be present with Joanne, and pray with Joanne, and, uh, and we all have circumstances in our life that we are battling and challenged by, one of the deepest things I get so encouraged by is when I hear you guys process through your journey of faith and how you're anchoring your life in Christ. And so even in that moment in Honda Zimbrick, while we have four other people, it's like the most awkward thing, right? We're praying in Honda Zimbrick, and I pray with my eyes open. I don't know about you guys. I pray with my eyes open, and I see one person get up and leave our space because they were just slightly offended by what was taking place. And yet there were three other people that were leaning into God's work in Joanne's life privilege, right? God, what are you inviting me into today? And, uh, and as we jump into Luke, I, I love the song we heard. Can you put up that lyric, uh, Josh? Uh, like a fetter, your grace like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee, a fetter. I mean, it's not a word we use often, a fetter. It's a shackle or a chain, a fetter. Like let your grace, like a chain, like a shackle, bind my wandering heart to thee. We're so prone to wander. We're so prone to be wandering around in our Monday to Saturdays. We pray with desperate dependence, God, like a chain, like a chain. I, I need you to link my heart to you so I do not wander. I mean, I love that cry because I think that's where John is taking us this morning. Luke 3 John, we're going to hear from John the Baptist, and we're going to hear some profound realities that might sound so familiar to our ears, and yet I don't want us to miss the profundity of what he is saying. And so jump in to Luke chapter 3, and, and it's, a, it's 20 verses. I am going to read them, but I hope you read along as we are reading them, and then we will walk through what Luke is recording about John the Baptist. So here's where he starts. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate 
being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Atira and Trachonitis, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, bless you, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers, you children of snakes, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? Tell us, John, what should we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. And he said to them, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news. Oh, it's a beautiful thing. You guys are doing great back there. Dylan, Leah, crushing it. We love crying babies around here, right? It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So with many other exhortations, he preached the good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, this illicit relationship, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, and he locked John in prison. Here's where we're headed this morning. John, recorded by Luke, has three unmistakable and profound truths for us. And Yet, as we hear them, they might feel so familiar. So I'm going to encourage you, fight through the familiarity. John the Baptist prepared people for the entrance of the king by conveying three unmistakable and essential truths that must be embraced if we are to experience God's salvation. So pray with me, and we will dig into the text together. Oh, God, you are so good. We anchor our lives like a fetter. We anchor our lives to you through your word to hear your voice. Because uh, we know we are prone to wander. Even in this space, our heart and our mind might wander. We ask with desperate dependence that you help us hear from your word through the words of John the Baptist this morning. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So what, what we're starting, uh, I, I at least want to do a little historical background because you read this stuff and you're like, what in the world 
is, is happening. Who are these people? Because you read these words, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, right? I mean, when you hear Caesar, does anybody else just think Caesar salad dressing and you're thinking about that Caesar salad you might have at Chili's later this afternoon? He's just one of the Caesars, right? Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and the Herods, the Tetrarchs, Philip, yep, got it. And then the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, got it. Well, what is happening? Because this is a different Caesar, a different emperor than what we heard in Luke 2, Augustus. This is Tiberius, and this guy is like most Caesars. They started out strong, and then they just fall off the map of, uh, of depravity. And so this guy is just a broken global leader, to be sure, but just broken and depraved. Some of the wickedness, the human sexuality that he was just participating in, it was just evil. And, and then we hear about these governors. So Herod the Great then splits up this kingdom, his, his oversight in this area, to his sons. And so uh, they each get a third of this general area. And so we're going to hear about Agrippa if we ever get to Acts. Um, Philip, we see him referenced here. And then uh, Antipas. So that's the guy we're going to hear when John says... Uh, tell that, or Jesus says, tell that fox, not a, not a friendly term. We're going to hear about that guy. He's going to be the guy Jesus mostly interacts with. But there's this fascinating uh, window into Archelaus. So, so he divides the kingdom. So you got, you got Philip up there in that brown area, and then Antipas in that purple area, and then Archelaus gets like two-fourths of the kingdom, gets about half. And and he's just not a nice guy. That during one of these Passovers, they're, they're wrestling. They don't like him. Jews don't like this guy. And he's not too happy about that either. And so he slaughters 3,000 Jews during this feast. And that, you could imagine, that doesn't make them very excited about him overseeing this area. And nor did it make Rome all that excited about him overseeing this area. And so, so because, because this guy... Archelaus both is not a good leader as well as he wants to go get married to someone else that breaks Mosaic law. He gets deposed, and now that particular region is overseen by these Roman governors, of which Pontius Pilate becomes the fifth one. So we're going to hear about Pontius Pilate, right? But he's now the fifth governor in this area. And, and so why does that matter? In my head, I can't help but hear these words. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, Herod the Tetrarch, Philip, and Lysanias, we don't know much about him, this makes it complicated, and then Annas and Caiaphas. Annas, there's only one high priest, why does Luke mention two? It's because of the wickedness, Annas is uh, the father-in-law and was the previous high priest, now passed on to Caiaphas, but still exercising some influence and, and, and unjust influence, and so Luke mentions him. I can't help but hear these words. <laughs> in the second year of Joe Biden's reign, <laughs> under Governor Evers, uh, Ron Johnson, Senator Ron Johnson and Senator Tammy Baldwin, with our representative, Mark Pocan, uh, and our village president, Randy G., good old Randy, what happens? The word of the Lord comes to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. 
Luke names these global superpowers as a footnote for the advancement of the kingdom. In the midst of all the dynamics taking place in the known world and in our world, the kingdom of God moves forward. We're going to vote this week, right? I don't want to miss this and the timing that God chose to bring Luke 3 into our time. In the midst of the global powers of the day, Luke simply notes it as a footnote for the advancement of the kingdom of God coming to John. And then he tells us a little bit about this guy, right? Because who is this guy? Is he a global superpower? No, he's, he's a real guy. And he's laying the groundwork as the forerunner for the Messiah. And he has three unmistakable important realities for our life. So thank you, Jessica, for that. I appreciate that. That courtesy laugh for my soul. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So he's, he's in the midst of this world, and Luke wants to tell us what he is proclaiming. He's proclaiming this baptism of the repentance of sins. And, and you guys know I never do this. I never want the Bible to be inaccessible, but this word for me wrecks me every time I see this word repentance because repentance at its core is a change in thinking. It means you've changed your thinking. Now, in a world that feels like, man, we change our minds so quickly, maybe it loses some of its meaning, but the idea of changing your thinking that impacts your heart, that translates to the way you live, the idea of repentance is a change in thinking about who sits on the throne of your heart, that you're turning from something and turning to something, a change in one's thinking that inevitably leads to a change in behavior. And so John calls people this change of thinking to a baptism of the repentance of sins. What does he call them to? Here's where he starts. That we are all headed towards really big consequences. Here's what he says, and I love it. He said, therefore, to the crowds who came out to be baptized by him. He's calling them to repentance. They're going to find him. They hear this authoritative account, and then how does he respond? Said this soft, loving, gentle, what does he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And then, even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I don't know if you've noticed this. As I drive around Oregon, as I drive around our towns, do you guys see all the trees that are being cut down? My heart is just being burdened by this reality. There are devastating, really big consequences for those that do not treasure Jesus, right? I drive around and I just see all these trees laid bare. Even now the axe is laid, and then he says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, Jesus, about Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, positive, and yet the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Huh. Do you feel the heaviness? We went from talking about triple treat and the joys to, man, you just feel the weight. Because it feels like he's calling us to this understanding of big S sin and little s sin. Big S sin being at the very core of who we are, there is a brokenness that is irreconcilable on our own, independent from God. And little s sin, these behaviors that manifest a deeper issue. And so there's this wrath to come, John says, that is unchangeable unless we repent. 
And so what is that? We can trace that all the way back to Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve, I think real historical figures, if you want to wrestle through that, he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From that moment, there is this brokenness in humanity that needs to be reconciled that I think every human heart feels. <laughs> and we try and fill that void with so many different ways. Bind my wandering heart to thee. And then, not primarily about the fruit. So often when I think people hear sin, they think, well, it's all the bad stuff, right? It's all these behaviors. It actually stems from something deeper. What is that? Not trusting that God has our best in mind. And so how do I observe that? Well, I can look at my action and see that it stems from something deeper. When, when, I, when I lose it on my kids, what's going on in that moment? <laughs> There's something deeper than just the behavior. When sweet Casey just, just does something to just irritate the heck, you would never imagine Casey would do anything like that. She is the sweetest, sweetest. There's something actually deeper in me that's being manifest when that behavior, that action comes out, right? Because here's the posture that God intends for us. There is a ratio or, a, or, a, or a, a lens that we actually hope God sits on the throne of our heart and he is, he is someone I can deeply trust in. And yet, and yet what happens is that I actually begin wanting to sit on the throne of my heart and, and I want to believe that there's an understanding that I bring that far supersedes his. If you can even see it, a small little font right there that says God. And there was a whole system predicated by, uh, by the Jews to help understand the weight of this reality. There was a whole sacrificial system. You want to read about it? You want to see a lot of blood? Go read Leviticus. And all it is is showing God is so holy and we are not. And we are all in this, <laughs> this eternal consequence independent from him. We can't fix our problem. We need an intermediary and we need a sacrifice for our sin. And so John, what does he say? He says, I'm preaching a baptism for the repentance of the forgiveness of sins. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so what do you do? Do you feel that weight or has that become so familiar to our ears that, that, that the tension is, I, I don't often look at the repentance I need. I just look over here to someone else and I go, man, I think they need a lot of repentance in their life. Let me list the ways that they could grow. Instead, John is calling us to this repentance, the forgiveness of sins. And then where does he go? One solution. We must absolutely recognize the one and only solution is Jesus. Here's where John takes us in his sermon or message. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he knows where our hearts go because what is the thing he addresses? As soon as you call someone to repentance, where do our hearts go? John knows. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. <laughs> Don't begin to list your accolades and what you've done and the works you've produced because I know that's where you're going to go and instead sit in that and understand those don't save you. Do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Instead, recognize there's a guy coming who straps in, I'm unworthy to untie. 
So where do we go? It is this place in my heart. I start to reconcile and rationalize my behavior and, and my circumstance. Works righteousness is my effort to connect with God apart from Jesus. I begin thinking these rhythms or practices are the very essence of my faith. Instead, that's just works righteousness. Works righteousness is my effort to earn merit by works, performance, duty, holiness, piety, legacy, and favor of God. And when I start to feel this shame or guilt or condemnation that I'm just not quite measuring up, what is that? Man, that is a reminder that I still somehow think my works before God do more than they actually can. Because Paul tells us there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Right, Lisa? Oh, come on. And yet here's the challenge. We hear this so much that we just go, oh, oh I know sin. Oh, I should, you know what? I cussed at my wife last week and I cussed at my kids. You know, that coworker, I just want to, I just want to, oh, just. And then we start beating ourselves up. Instead of feeling the unbelievable freedom, there's life with Jesus as the only solution. Not by this symbol of baptism, though it's beautiful, not by family heritage, God doesn't have grandkids, and not too much trust in the messenger. Well, well, God, David said I was good. One of my greatest fears is that you would ever say, well, David told me I was good. Instead, do you have this only hope of forgiveness in Jesus? And then genuine faith always gets demonstrated. And if we get that wrong, (laughs) we're in eternal trouble. And I actually think that's great news, that it's independent from any work I could ever do to, to close this irreconcilable gap. Instead, John tells us, because they began to wonder, so John, are you the guy? John says, it's not me. John said, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you in your heart with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I love the opening lines to a book called God is the Gospel. If you could have had everything in this life, but Jesus wasn't there, is it still heaven? You could have all your friends, all the goodies that you ever wanted, but Jesus wasn't present in his barn. Is it still heaven? Instead, the essence is life with Jesus. There is the essence of what we cling to. And then John says, if you believe that, what takes place in your life? Yeah, we've heard the message of the irreconcilable gap. We've heard the message that Jesus is the solution. And then John has people listening there, and they say, John, what do we do? And John tells them, our recognition of this solution demands a response. And don't miss the response, because this floored me this week. Because I've read, I've read the verse, I talked through it, and then I was sitting in it, and I go, man, there's something so profound here in the simplicity. Here's John's response, because what do you think the response is supposed to be? Man, go and sell everything. You're supposed to just clear all the things in your life and go follow Jesus, right? That we hear that. And here is the words John preaches to the crowds. Don't miss this. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? What do we do? John, we believe you. We believe there's a guy we need to put our faith in. What do we do? And then he says, you feel the weight. Who warned you to flee from the wrath? What do we do? He says, 
bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And then he begins to develop what that would look like. And, and, and you feel like there's this climax building. Like there's, John, tell us. Tell us what the fruit of repentance would be. Here's what he says. He speaks to the crowds. He speaks to the tax collectors. He speaks to the soldiers. This big climax of what bearing fruit would be. Here's what he says. Are you ready? Here's what he says. This this is the life-changing acts of repentance that demonstrate faith. Here's what he says. Share. (laughs) Don't steal. Don't make threats and extort. (laughs) Almost feels anticlimactic, doesn't it? I was reading this going, man, What's the call to repentance? And it almost feels like this anticlimactic end to John out in the wilderness. Aren't you expecting like, flee your homes and come live with me eating locusts and honey out in the middle of nowhere? Like, is that the call? Instead, what does he say? Share. Don't steal. And so in your heart, what starts to bubble up? Because I'll tell you what bubbled up in my mind. I'm like, man, that feels anticlimactic until you feel the weight of what it means. Because what do all three of those have in common? What's the issue at stake that he's pressing people with? And I find this fascinating. (laughs) Say it again, Larry. Yes, sorry. Money. Money, sex, and power, right? First century, John calls people to repentance. What's the issue at stake? Money. Ah, what, in my heart, I go, well, I'm, not, I'm not rich, right? And I always love the universal line of what I'm not rich means is anyone that has more than me is rich, right? That's like the line. Anyone who has more than me, there's the universal line of who is rich in this life. If they have more than me, then they're rich. That's doesn't apply to me. I'm not rich. Well, who's rich? Just anyone that has more than me. That's who it probably applies to. But he says, whoever has two tunics, give one. Share. It feels like in modern evangelical Christianity, we've created these two-tier systems of people who believe that Jesus is who he is, died on the cross, I'm reconciled by faith, but then there's this other category that you're supposed to be. Like, then you're a disciple. Then you've really arrived. Us for the missionaries, the pastors. Those are like the really holy people. But the rest of us, I mean, I just, I believe this stuff. And we reject that two-tier model. We instead say, man, once I come to faith, once I realize the depth of my need, And Jesus is the solution. I can't help but want to live. And the profundity of the the response, it's actually just as life happens in our everyday, in the day in, Monday to Saturday living, of sharing, not stealing, not extorting, money, sex, and power, right? And so what does he say? Whoever has two tunics, share. Collect no more than you're authorized to. And he addresses each person with some individual things. Soldiers making a minimum wage or a daily wage, but not more. They're trying to squeeze something out instead. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. What is that? At the end of the day, those are actions manifested by a distrust. The distrust that then permeates specific actions. And so I wonder, what are the actions for us? Our heart goes to value three. Our value around here is generous relationships. What would it look like 
for us as a church family to live with this heart for generous relationships as a response. Megan, what would that feel like? What would that look like, right? Where, where is this generosity that's bubbling out of our heart as a reflection of our faith? And I love where John ends or where Luke ends with John. He says this, and so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. <laughs> the good news is you brood of vipers. <laughs> that's the good news. And how freeing, because God's love is, and I feel this with my kids, demonstrated when justice is upheld, when there's actually a line that I hold my kids to, and then there's consequences when they cross that line, but then how does grace get manifest is when I compromise and demonstrate grace despite them crossing the line, and I see that in God's gracious love for us. And there were consequences for John living in this way. What does it say? Herod wasn't a big fan of John telling him about his illicit relationship. And he locked him up in prison. <laughs> That's the good news. And so I wonder, what would that look like for us in our Monday to Saturday? And I think it revolves around seeing and showing. And so if you're feeling this sense of apathy or, or stagnant faith where, where, you, where you believe Jesus is the solution, but there's this gap, what, what would it look like to spark deeper faith? Uh, I think this, seeing. Do we spend one hour contemplating the eternal magnitude of God's love for us? Might we just sit long enough? Because, man, if you're anything like me, my phone and that scroll come so quickly. <laughs> You guys know I take a study day on Wednesday. I try to be still, and I am horrible at it. I'm horrible at it, and yet striving to feel the weight and magnitude of God's love for us, to sit and feel the weight. What are we feeling the weight of? I can evaluate my actions, my behavior, and actually see how that is directly correlated to a trust that God is working out in my life. He says, David, do you trust me? David, do you trust that I actually have your best in mind and I am working for your good? And so I want to see the Savior. There's, a, there's this, this geographical or topography issue in Hawaii. You have these sand dunes in certain parts of the island. You guys know I grew up in Hawaii, right? We've talked about this. And there's these sand dunes in Hawaii that form. And, and so we love racing up to the top of the sand dune. And then when you're at the top, what can you do? you can look out and see the beauty of the Pacific Ocean and just, just bask in the glory and the magnitude of endless sea, right? Here's, here's the tension I feel as your pastor from time to time. And, and maybe you feel this tension in your world, in, in the lives you interact with as well. I love the privilege, right? You guys allow me to look and see the glories of the beauty of the Pacific Ocean. What, what inevitably happens when you want to show someone the beauty of what you've just been enjoying. There's a, there's a tendency then where you turn around and you want to call people up to this process. And so the challenge is seeing and enjoying, but then wanting to turn and invite others into it, the joy of what it means to follow Christ. And so I, I wanted to share just a few, if the right words, pledges of what this process might be for us, of how we might do that, of not becoming so overly focused on showing without the, the joy of seeing. So here's, here's some pledges that I, I was wrestling with this week of that seeing and showing. 
that we believe the call to repentance is a call of the people of God before it is ever the call for anyone else. Then the desire to show people the forgiveness of sins, here's what could happen sometimes. Don't you know all the ways you can grow? (laughs) Can't you see all the areas you have that you need to repent of? And yet, the call to repentance is the call of the people of God before it is ever a call on anybody else. That there's areas of growth in my life that God's doing a work in that I want to see more fully the depth and the magnitude of what I've been saved from. And then we see a call to repentance is what happens whenever the love of Jesus inevitably flows out of us who have received it to those who desperately need it. Just want to help people see Jesus more fully. And we will never view any person as a project. Instead, as God views them as an individual created in his image for whom he has sacrificed his son that they might be forgiven of their sins. The hope that anyone we come across with do we see through the eyes of the opportunity to find life and meaning in relationship with Jesus. And we always regard ourselves as grateful beggars who have found food, who in our joy can't help but share Jesus with other beggars. And so what would that look like? What would showing look like this week? So if you need to see Spend time seeing. Sit at the foot of the cross and go, God, I can't believe you paid for that one too. What a gift. I can't believe how many chips I'm going to cash in on my deathbed of how much grace you showered on me. And if you're in a place where you'd want to show, what would that look like? I want to try and overcome some misconceptions about what life as an everyday missionary might look like. So showing, I think, comes with some commonly held misunderstandings of what everyday missionary life is. Here's one that comes to my mind, that somehow hanging with sinners equals sin. Somehow, if I'm hanging with those that have yet to treasure Jesus, somehow that makes me culpable for sin. Instead, what I see Jesus doing is he ate and drank with sinners and tax collectors. It was a beautiful thing and somehow still maintained his holy, righteous life as the Son of God. And the warning in that is, man, sometimes hanging with sinners may equal loving the world. And I don't know where your heart might be in that. But hopefully there is this call. There are people that have yet to treasure Christ in our lives. Some might even be in this space exploring what it means to treasure Jesus and trying to see if he really has the words to life. And so I hope we never say, I don't have the gift of evangelism. I don't, I don't have that gift. I did the whole spiritual gifts inventory. I took all 10 of them. Mine's not on the top 10. I don't have that gift. That tier one, tier two mentality, we reject that around here. Instead, we see it is the beauty of just sharing what we have and what's been done in our life. We all can deepen in our understanding of what we've been saved from. We all can have a clarity on the solution. And then, now I, I need to be prepared to answer any possible question or objection. I don't know what I'd be asked. You don't know until you enter the conversation. Maybe you know more than you do. You know, man, I'm a broken knucklehead. Let me tell you the ways. If you don't believe me, talk to my wife. She'll tell you all the ways. I need to be prepared to answer any possible question. What a gift to actually journey in a conversation about spiritual things in life. And then, ah, I evangelize by giving money to missionaries. You know that guy, Jacob? He's a cool dude. Let's just pay their organization and abdicate the responsibility, I think, What would it look like to go on a missionary trip and go next door to your neighbor to have a spiritual conversation? Evangelize by giving money to missionaries. 
an evangelism event. We did triple treat. Check the box. I did my evangelism for the year. How great was that? It was a beautiful thing. I leveraged impact. It was a wonderful thing. Instead, do we see the events around here as actually ways to practice ministry outside the program, to actually see them as ways to collectively practice something that would, again, we did a Packer watch party. What might it look like to watch the Packers or the 6-1, 7-1 Vikings? What do we have to? It's a beautiful thing. 7-1? Six, about, I was, it was a premonition of prophecy, Tyler. That's what it was. And then evangelism is best left to the pros. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not the professional. David, that's why we pay you. You're the professional. Or semi-pro, depending on how maybe you determine my gifting, whatever it might be. That's best left to the pros. Let them do it. Let the pros take care of it. That, I would say that's a misnomer about what evangelism is. It's actually seeing us all on this journey. And then, if you didn't close the deal, you failed. I think, broadly speaking, a lot of good but maybe crusades did a disservice to the journey of faith by seeing it as simply crossing that line rather than this ongoing journey of life with Christ. If you didn't close the deal, you failed rather than actually saying, maybe the first step is just sparking curiosity. And then I, I, love, I love this last one. I need to figure out ways to motivate Christians to evangelize. <sighs> I hope our heart around here is the more we see just how sweet Jesus is, there's an inevitable byproduct in our life. So week in, week out, we sit in the text to hear from God through his word that it might impact our lives. Jesus, where would we go? You have the words to life. We don't need to figure out ways to motivate Christians to evangelize. We simply want to sit at Jesus' feet with him on the throne of our hearts and live that out in our Monday to Saturday. And so you guys know, you guys know it's voting week this week, right? I hope you guys go vote. I hope you take advantage of this beautiful process we have in our country. And, and I, love, uh, I, I love history. If you explore all the, all the countries and nations in the history of the world, I am so glad that God in his infinite wisdom allowed me to be born in this time, in this space, in this country. It's a beautiful thing. I don't know what I'd do if I had to like churn butter and like actually farm. I mean, farmers are just incredible. I'm, I'm a white collar guy, right? I'm a city boy. And so I am so thankful in his grace and sovereignty that, that we are born in this time, in this space. But the words of Luke can't, can't hit me more. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, of, of uh, uh, Tiberius, uh, Tiberius the Caesar, in the life of the Tetrarchs, under the government of Pontius Pilate, the word came to John. In the second year of Joe Biden, in the Senate race of Ron Johnson, Tammy Baldwin, Representative Mark Pocan, I can't help but think that God's kingdom marches on. That as we vote this week, may you never lose perspective of what God is doing through the reality of the depth of consequences, the only solution that we have, and the inevitable response as life happens in our Monday to Saturday. So I'm going to welcome up the worship team, and then we will pray as we continue. God, you are so good. 
What an absolute gift to sit and hear your words through John. The unmistakable realities of the irreconcilable gap apart from you. May we experience more of that. May we see your unfathomable love towards us that inevitably cascades out into the lives around us. If we're feeling apathetic this week, God, flood us with your spirit. And if we can't contain our joy in you enough, may we pray with desperate dependence what you're inviting us into with the possibility that we might get to show more fully the transformational love we've experienced. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen.